This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. This hour, we continue to hear from the actors in and director of The Mountaintop, opening tomorrow night at Theater Squared in Fayetteville. There is fear to walk out and put your whole heart out there to an audience that may not look like you, but I'm still talking to you. Or an audience that does look like you, but they want to, well, you can't do that to MLK. Why not? And in just a few minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports a 19th century cemetery for African-Americans in Fayetteville is being saved. Arkansas reports 3,600 new cases of COVID-19 in yesterday's count. Three additional deaths from the virus were also reported. Hospitalizations continue to mount during the latest surge. The number of patients with the virus increased by 36 in the last 24-hour reporting period. There are now more than 1,400 people with the disease in Arkansas hospitals. Active cases in the state dropped, but there are still 93,000. Governor Asa Hutchinson says that slight reduction in active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas is due in part to the smaller number of tests administered during the holiday weekend. COVID-19 test kits made available by the federal government are beginning to be distributed in Arkansas. This week on Arkansas PBS, Dr. Naveen Patil, an infectious disease specialist with Baptist Health in Little Rock, said the state is focused on making the kits easily available. These tests are, uh, that, that is being distributed by the um, uh, state are available in all the local health units that are present in every county of the state and also the local libraries. So we had ordered 1.5 million. So we have received about a quarter million. We are supposed to be receiving them every few days. So as they come, they will be distributed and the public will be informed. The Arkansas Department of Health website shows a map of sites where the free at-home COVID-19 test kits can be picked up. The state received its first shipments of the kits last week. The public is being encouraged to test for COVID-19 and quarantine if the test is positive in order to slow the spread of the highly contagious Omicron variant. Talk Business and Politics reports the U.S. Department of Transportation will earmark nearly $278 million for bridge repairs in Arkansas. The money is part of the bipartisan infrastructure law and will be used for work on more than 650 bridges in Arkansas considered to be in poor condition and to preserve thousands more of Arkansas bridges considered to be in fair condition. The Walmart Amp continues to fill out its warm weather concert schedule. This morning, the venue added the double bill of Fitz and the Tantrums and St. Paul and the Broken Bones. The concert is set for Thursday, June 23rd. Tickets go on sale Friday morning at 10 a.m. through the usual Walton Arts Center outlets. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team seeks a third straight conference win tonight in Fayetteville. The Razorbacks host South Carolina. Saturday, Arkansas upset number 12 LSU in Baton Rouge. This is Ozarks at Large. An 1800s African-American cemetery in East Fayetteville, almost lost to history, is being restored. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. A manicured and fenced burial ground on the western slope of Mount Sequoia, originally called East Mountain, contains hundreds of remains of Confederate soldiers who perished fighting in the Civil War. Even on this frigid day, families are visiting the graves of ancestors, paying their respects. And in the woods above this Confederate cemetery lie the remains of some of the earliest white residents of this mountain in several small fenced family plots. But scattered through the forest are rough stones marking African-American graves. This windy, frigid afternoon, Sharon Killian carefully wanders through. Sometimes you really don't know what you're walking on because um, traditionally, we're left under earth and unmarked. 
An artist and an educator, Sharon Killian, is president of the board of the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association, established in 2009, which works to preserve and document the African American histories and places in Benton, Carroll, Madison, and Washington counties. Killian shows us one of the few marked African American graves here. This is Josh Thompson. And there's so much to, to learn and to tell about this person. This is a black person. And he was buried here in 1917. So it's one of the, the later burials. This cemetery was established circa 1840 and today is located above Fayetteville's historic African-American district along Willow Street, where many descendants continue to live. The site has long been known as Walker Cemetery, so designated by a large family plot in which lies buried David Walker, born 1806, died 1879, and attorney Walker served on the Arkansas Territory Legislature in 1835 and later the state Supreme Court. The Whig politician, secessionist, and developer owned a large plantation on Dead Horse Mountain in far eastern Fayetteville, as well as enslaved African Americans. An 1850 slave schedule reveals Walker owned 20 enslaved blacks, ranging in age from one year old to 46, both male and female. In the 1960s, Fayetteville native Clifton Wade purchased a 10-acre tract of the Walker property, including this forested burial ground. The Confederate Southern Memorial Association, which was deeded the Walker family plot, sought to acquire a portion of the Black Cemetery as buffer property, Killian says. But Lynn Wade, Clifton's son and heir, a progressive local attorney, instead deeded 1.1 acres to Killian's Black Heritage Association in 2014. This winter, adding five and a half acres more, perpetually protecting the site. This whole place was devastated by the 2009 ice storm. And so many trees were felled and we, you know, we've removed tons of, of, of wood, tons of felled trees. Um, but they have spent some money on, on restoring already. We have not yet. Killian says the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association plans to ground truth this cemetery in collaboration with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey using remote sensing to locate what they believe to be as many as 100 African American graves. We know, we could see it, we could see the depressions, but there, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the plats that I have seen says uh, there are numerous unmarked graves on this site. Three graves are marked, however, on this woodland African-American burial ground known as East Mountain Cemetery. Josh Thompson is black. Consada Sudden is, is black. Sally is, only has a first name. Sally and a footstone and we're all surprised at that that she's even here with a name. In South Fayetteville, Oaks or Oaks Cemetery is where many of Fayetteville's historic and contemporary African Americans are buried and a few other burial grounds are documented including Baldwin Cemetery off Highway 16 east of Fayetteville which Killian's group also aims to preserve. Baldwin Cemetery is a half acre in a square reserved for blacks. It was sold by um, a white woman who owns enslaved people and after slavery was over. Her husband had died and she actually sold it to a black person. Three years ago, a black burial ground with as many as 90 graves was discovered by a cell phone company survey crew on a North Fayetteville hilltop. The church-owned property has since been dedicated and preserved. Killian believes David Walker and others in Fayetteville used this plot to bury their slaves. They didn't continue to bury white people here after a certain date. And, you know, they started burying them at the Evergreen Cemetery. An all-white cemetery near the University of Arkansas. Because it, it was cleaner, quote-unquote, cleaner, you know.
they didn't have to, it, it was more upper crust. In fact, there's one black person who was slipped in by, you know, hook or crook that nobody knew about um, in, in uh, Evergreen, and that's it. So they stopped burying here. This, this was not popular after a while for the, for the white uh, bourgeoisie. Historic cemeteries are strictly segregated in the South, but this one, a patchwork of white and black graves in close proximity, is rare. And something Killian had to reckon with. You know, I had a real experience about um, being able to take care of a place that has um, such a huge dichotomy that tells us everything about how we are today. With proper funding and a great deal of volunteer help, the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association plans to fully document, preserve, and interpret this site, including through art. Just the fact that we can say they were here is more, is so much more than disappearing us. It's so much more than disappearing us. So. Um, we'll find them, we'll see them, we'll, we'll, we'll say it out loud with plays, we'll say it out loud with music, we'll say it out loud with, with, with maybe an object or two or just an ambiance. And in the end, uh, a, a, a destination place for everyone to come. Creating a welcoming place to walk, to sit, enjoying the mountainside beauty, and ruminate on lost and found African-American history. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. If you'd like to share Jacqueline's story about the East Mountain Cemetery or any story or interview you hear on Ozarks at Large, we make sharing those stories and interviews pretty easy. Just go to ozarksatlarge.com. You'll find links associated with each story and interview, and you can use those links to share the stories through email or social media. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series featuring local artists and restaurants, returns Friday, January 21st with Mia Jeldum and Mockingbird Kitchen. Due to the current COVID-19 surge, January's concert will not have a live audience, but will be live-streamed. Last month's The Lunch Hour podcast featuring Bang and Woodstone Pizza founder Jeremy Gothrop is available on KUAF's YouTube page. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. GeorgesLive.com for more. This is Ozarks at Large. We're off and running for an election year. Granted, midterms are still months away, but the political landscape for the season is being formed now. This week, Roby Brock and John Brummett discuss the 2022 political forecast for the president, for the governor, and for the future Arkansas legislature. Roby, who is with our partner Talk Business and Politics, asked John a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, first about President Biden's voting rights speech last week. And if John Brummett thought the president overplayed his hand during that speech. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And there's something wrong with Joe. Uh, I understand that uh, the White House is in, inhabited by uh, bright young progressives who believe that the base must be motivated and uh, perhaps that this is uh, the Democrats' only chance to do big things. But I think he has overplayed the progressive side from the beginning. I've made that clear. But beyond that, on this occasion, uh, I think the name calling, and I've done a lot of name calling in my life, and I usually regret it when I do. Uh, it's, 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 you don't win arguments that way. Uh, you don't have influence that way. But to say that persons opposed to his voting rights bill, which presumably would include two members of his own party who simply don't want to blow up the filibuster uh, for, for reasons that I think have some merit, should be compared to Bull Connor or George Wallace or Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. That's a line that shouldn't be in a, uh, shouldn't have been written, and he should have known to take it out when he saw it, in my view. And it did literally no good. Uh, it did harm. And it violates what I think the people wanted for him when 72 million of them entrusted him 
as the as the option to Donald Trump, whom they didn't want. They wanted some boring, blissful competence uh, after, uh, and to help him get over this hangover of four years of Trump. And he has consistently not provided that. And the Quinnipiac poll, did you see his approval rating? Thirty-three uh, percent. It's it's. Uh, uh, these are these are bad days, bad days for uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, seems to me. What would you recommend is the approach to accomplishing some sort of Voting Rights Act or if maybe just something to protect the security of elections? We seem to be deeply divided on this. You see the partisan lines on this. How do you get something that there's an agreeable enough number of Republicans and Democrats to stop something from happening, such as uh, an election being stolen, which... We came pretty close to. Right. And, and and by the way, nothing in this, seven, I think it's 72 pages or maybe 720 pages. All these bills in Congress are big. The Voting Rights Act, like the Build Back Better, like everything else, is a vast array of uh, a mixed bag, a wish list. Uh, and, and I think would do nothing to stop Donald Trump from doing what he did. I do believe there are, I can name six Republicans. That doesn't get you to 60. I think whatever you got to do, you got to do it with 60 votes, uh, obviously. Uh, I mean, Romney, Collins, Murkowski, Portman, Cassidy, Sass, there's six. And I think you started earlier, you, you should have started earlier than this and set narrower parameters to try to do something about the most urgent uh, electoral needs without trying to get everything done that you want done in terms of uh, uh, gerrymandering outlawing or national election day or voters or mandating the states do automatic voter registration on getting driver's licenses and all these things that Republicans, for whatever reason, are not going to go with. Should have started before now and narrowed it to something about election, uh, election security, which I don't know what is. Yesterday, Mitt Romney was on one of the national shows and you know, he said, look, I, I never got a call on voting rights from the White House. I never did. He did it on, on the infrastructure bill. I know I talk too much about that. He and a gang of a dozen, six Democrats and six, six Republicans in the Senate, took Biden's proposal, paired it, and passed it from the center out. That's the only way, practically, things can get done. Now, you can go call names in Georgia. You can run your approval rating down, and you can throw red meat to the progressive base. Or you could try to do something more incremental, narrow, uh, from the center out. And he hasn't tried to do that. And uh, that's just the way it goes, seems to me. We have seen some pragmatism from Arkansas's governor, Asa Hutchinson. It was a good week, bad week for him. Good week, he got a $3 billion uh, steel mill up in northeast Arkansas. That's going to be a lot of jobs and a big economic boon to that area. Bad news Omicron is running rampant across Arkansas. We've seen the highest daily case totals that we've ever seen. Um, I guess if you had to fire an arrow, where would Asa Hutchinson be today? Uh, when I'm really waffling, when, I, when I, I, I have the typographers do a crossways arrow, rather than going up or down, it's just going across with arrowheads both ways. I'd probably do that uh, and wouldn't be proud of it. Uh, uh, you can't give, well, okay, I'd probably give him, this is going to be controversial, but that's okay. I'd probably, if I had to give him one, I'd give him an arrow up because uh, attracting this, this, this steel industry at those reported average salaries, that number of jobs with that kind of investment uh, in, a, in an otherwise depressed area of East Arkansas that has created sort of a modern steel haven in Northeast Arkansas, which has ancillary benefits with other industries uh, and, is in the, and, and is in the technological forefront of that industry. I see nothing bad about that. I think that's good. I don't think Arkansas is unique uh, or failure is unique in Arkansas to Asa Hutchison in terms of the rampant uh, spread of, uh, of uh, Omicron. And as I said last week, you just hope, uh, mainly we're, we're in a position of saying, let it roll, do the, y'all do what you're supposed to do, wear your masks, uh, get your vaccines, uh, have good sense about what you're doing, but we're not gonna do anything else. And we hope this thing 
peters out like it did in South Africa, and, the, and, then, the, and then the rates and then the infection rate starts coming down as it has in some of the eastern states. That's what we're doing. I don't like it, but it's what we're doing, and uh, I would uh, I would fire an arrow less on that basis than on the other. Lastly, you have written an article for us that talks about the. Um basically what's kind of going on internally in politics in Arkansas. And you've kind of led this story with uh, something happening in the hills of the Ozarks. So explain your assignment and explain what you've accomplished. Well, the idea, and I do this, I'm happy to do this for you once a year, uh, help you or contribute to your annual sort of state of the state politics and business. Now, online uh, magazine and i'm happy to do it and we usually come up with a kind of state of the politics in arkansas some or some element of it for me to do and that's what we did this year and this year your uh you lean toward a theme and i agreed and the story i think bears it out that in arkansas we've become so conservative so overwhelmingly republican that uh, the real action in arkansas uh, for 2022, looks like it could be in legislative seats uh, between conservative Republicans and then more extreme strident Republicans like Trent Garner, who's leaving Bob Ballinger. And uh, I got some concurrence. Uh, the governor, in, uh, when I interviewed him, took quite a bit of time to contemplate that uh, that uh, that question, but said, yeah, that's an element of what's going on in politics. Of course, he's He's a traditional Republican who's been fighting that. In Northwest Arkansas, one of the chief uh, uh, examples of the strident, some think destructive uh, uh, Republicans is Bob Ballinger. He got an opponent from a, a gentleman who is the head of the Harrison Chamber of Commerce and a retired uh, Air Force colonel who in his statement said it's time for collaborative uh, leadership and teamwork, Conserva uh, conservative, collaborative, conservative uh, legislative uh, service and teamwork. I took that to be an exact sample of what we're talking about, and I think I think that he is the kind. That is the kind of candidacy, and I'm, his name is Largent, Bob Largent. I think he's the that kind of candidacy reflects the theme we're talking about, and I think it reflects the kind of. Uh, uh, smartly targeted legislative change that the common ground group is talking about, trying to emphasize. The theory being, uh, conservative legislature represents Arkansas, and that's one thing. The kind of legislature we've had, sort of an overactive conservatism uh, that Asa Hutchinson says he sees, is destructive, and that culture could be changed with just a few well-chosen replacements. That's that's sort of the theme of the. Uh, I've got uh, uh, I've got uh, a quote from leading Democrat Senator uh, uh, Clark Tucker, who, who says, uh, with Rapert, Jason Rapert, who, uh, who's rather strident, uh, running for lieutenant governor, with Trent Garner resigning, with some other races developing, uh, the issue is not how many Republicans we're going to have in the Senate next year. He says. It's which Republicans, what kind of Republicans. So that's the theme of the article, and I hope everybody will read it. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and you can read his columns at ArkansasOnline.com. You can find his article about the makeup of the Arkansas legislature at TalkBusiness.net, and we'll have a direct link as well at OzarksAtLarge.com. He spoke with Roby Brock from our partner, talk business and politics. And ahead on Ozarks, we hear from the director and the two actors creating the production of The Mountaintop by Katori Hall, opening tomorrow at Theater Squared. They discuss their preparation and what it means to, among other things, bring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the stage. That's just ahead. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Chico County native became the first black man to serve in the Arkansas State Police. Marion Taylor Jr. was born in Dermot in 1940, but his family moved to Little Rock, where he attended Horace Mann High School and Arkansas Baptist College before earning a master's degree at Washita Baptist University. He married Betty Jean Toombs, who had been a plaintiff in the case that desegregated Little Rock Public Schools in 1958. After serving in the Air Force, he became a Little Rock police officer until 1967, when he broke the color barrier in the state police. 
As a trooper, he served as public service spokesman, instructed at the State Law Enforcement Academy, and gave programs and safe driving demonstrations around the state. He and three other black men who joined the force shortly after Taylor became lifelong friends. Taylor went to work for the Corps of Engineers in 1973 and worked with them for 25 years. He died in 2000 and is buried in Little Rock's Haven of Rest Cemetery. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. The 2022 season at Theater Squared in downtown Fayetteville opens tomorrow night with Katori Hall's The Mountaintop. The play imagines a conversation between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a visitor in Dr. King's Lorraine Motel room the night before he was murdered. On yesterday's program, we heard from one of the two actors in the production, Clinton Lowe, who plays Dr. King, and from the director, Vicki Washington, about preparing for the production. We hear from them again today in just a few minutes, but also Anisia J. Hicks, who plays Dr. King's visitor. We'll hear each of the creators, in their own words, explain the work leading to tomorrow night's opening. Beginning with Anisia J. Hicks, she says she feels great responsibility in bringing her character and this play to the T2 stage. What I recognized personally in this show, my special task was to research, not have as much research about him as much as I needed to have research about the time and about women and about all that stuff. So that was more my responsibility because I realized very early, if I spent all my time just getting all this information about him, then I'm just going to be, that's Clinton's job. That. Like, there's a reason why there's a fully realized female in the room. I need to figure out what that is. But one of my favorite things I did appreciate about seeing some of the research that was brought into the rehearsal space, uh, to uh, Ms. Vicky's point, was all of a sudden in in the videos that I watched, I saw this man. I saw this scared little boy in that man. I saw him up against differing opinions within our community. And what does that mean? And what that is right now to what Ms. Vicky's said. We always have the danger of the one story. And for every fight that we are embroiled in, civil rights, uh, gender equality, all the different things, we never like to, we never like to look within the group and go, great, this is all great. What else? Why are we arguing amongst ourselves? What's actually happening? Because when we tell this, the, the story of MLK in those little snapshots, we also do damage to ourselves as a community to think, oh, we all thought like that at a time. No, we didn't. And you're you, if you think opposite or you go, I buy it. However, all of a sudden you are um, a sellout. All of a sudden you are not truly black because, oh, you you over here uh, just throwing uh, MLK under the bus. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm seeing all these things and I can look at his philosophy and understand where it came from and go, yeah, like I hear you. I absolutely hear you. And there's parts of it I do agree with. However, this right. Same thing with Malcolm X. There could be things that I go, okay, I'm with you. However, this and what I loved was seeing the reality of the multi layers that were at the time. It was not a pretty time. And, 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 and what does that do to a person? I was so struck by his humanity because like Clinton said, like Ms. Vicky said, we have really frozen him in time. He said, I have a dream. We've made him godlike and put him completely far away from us, taken away his humanity. And then you go, oh, he must have been perfect. So then here I am in the room about to engage in this play. And it's the first time that I'm seeing this man. And my eyes went wide, seeing him be scared, seeing his movements, his body, the way he would do this thing with his lips, the way he would hold himself, fix himself. It was, it was like, oh my God, he lived. He lived. And what, and just for me as a as a as a black person, aside from all the research for the show, I found myself 
humbled and seeing his fear and also knowing it just, it's okay to be scared. Even when you take on all this stuff, even in the work that I'm, I may not have taken on that mantle, Clinton, Ms. Vicky, but all three of us are in this room doing that same work on a smaller scale. There is fear to walk out and put your whole heart out there to an audience that may not look like you, but I'm still talking to you. Or an audience that does look like you, but they want to, well, you can't do that to MLK. Why not? Why can't we have a conversation? And so I like that I got to see him as a man and that I will, I will always hold that and understand his flaws and go, okay, okay, what is it to rebuild um, a picture of someone? It's kind of like when you find out a truth about a family member that you held in high regard. And then all of a sudden you learn some things about them when you become an adult and your picture, there's dissonance and you gotta go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does this fit and this fit and this fit and this fit? And taking the time personally for me outside of Kame in the show, being in the room, it's me, it's been me deconstructing my idea and adding pieces of the puzzle that I didn't know was missing and zooming out and also putting other parts in and going, okay, that have a better understanding of the picture. Um, and my naivete has gone down a little bit. I don't know if it's ironic, but I will say that it's interesting that we're telling an imaginary story about this man, this male icon figure. And my collaborators were all self-identifying female. And except for, so it's two black women, three black women, excuse me, a Latinx woman, and, I, and another woman of color who I believe is of Asian and Jewish descent. And to be the only male in the room, forging this story in the fire of our creativity um, was, a, was a gift and a joy because I believe the male gaze and the white supremacist gaze has been so strong in the, this is your word, Ms. Vicky, the fossilizing of King. Right, Ms. Vicky once said that we have fossilized King, as, as, as has been repeated through this conversation. But I think that has a lot to do with capitalism, and as King would say, militarism um, and patriarchy and, and white supremacy. Like, I think he was co opted in many ways. But King, at the time of his death, as we saw through our research in one of the documentaries, had a very, very low approval rating throughout the country. And Hoover had a much higher approval rating. Now we think of it the other way around. But at the time, Hoover was kind of, he was more in line with mainstream thought than we would like to. So, and King, I don't know if he saw who he was, right? To some of Anissa's points and Miss Vicky's. I don't know if King, the example I'm thinking of in one of the documentaries, uh, uh, one of his, I think his lawyer at the time, one of his lawyers was like, hey, I think the FBI is tapping our phones. And King's response is something of the nature in that, why would the FBI, like, the FBI has better things to do than to listen to our conversations. Why would they do that? And, this, and also, like, why would, why would people want to hurt us for trying to fight for rights? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So almost a naivete, right? And why would... Why would anybody, why would people be against fighting for rights? Why would people be against achieving the American dream? Why would people be against peace and love? I don't, I don't understand, right? That's something that I've seen dramatically throughout his time as a civil rights leader is this, this misunderstanding, this lack of understanding of, of the hatred at play. And the blockades and the forces against what he was trying to push. And then at the end, you kind of see the realization, right? He doesn't talk about Vietnam for 18 months. Then he comes out, he talks about it, shuts it down. Then he comes back out about Vietnam. And the backlash, the backlash. And the last thing I'll say is to connect it to now is he said that Vietnam would be, in the play I say, this war would be our own violent undoing freedom suicide 
And I look at Vietnam and I look at my community. I grew up in, in New York City, grew up in the Bronx. And I look at the Bronx, Harlem, Brooklyn, South Central, South Side of Chicago, Memphis. I look at D.C. I look at all these places that experienced extreme urban decay in the 70s, in the 80s, through the 90s. And I look at the connection to the Vietnam War, the connection to soldiers coming back with PTSD, mental health issues, addicted to opioids, right? Coming back into the community, now they're dealing with heroin and then cocaine and then crack. Like, that's all connected. He prophesied that this war would destroy our communities and therefore the country. He prophesied that and people, I believe, killed him for it. Whoever killed him, they killed him once he started talking about economics and militarism. That's when he was destroyed. Not when he was saying, let's all hold hands and love each other. So to Ms. Vicky's point, that 1963 King, uh, there's a good five years of evolution post I Have a Dream that we have the pleasure of getting to explore. I would just uh, echo all that has that both Anissa and, and Clinton have said. I think it is it is worth noting that here we are in 2022 and it didn't start in 2022, but there are uh, many um, groups of people who use Dr. King's words for their to reinforce their um, <laughs> their politics, their uh, philosophies, which are totally. Uh, which are totally opposite what Dr. King, the reason that he said the things he did and the way in which he lived his life. To Anissa's point of everybody not being uh, welcoming King when he was even at the height of, of the time that most of America claimed they were welcoming. When he came to Dallas, Texas, where I was born and raised, uh, no, the church, nobody wanted him. The black churches didn't want to hear him. They did when, when he when he died and people were naming streets MLK Boulevard in Chicago. There was a very large church that changed where its front entrance was, bricked up one side so that the entrance would not be on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and that wouldn't be their address. Uh, the, I, would, I would say uh, Taylor Branch's um, books, Parting the Waters and, God, I can't think of the second one, but his books, Taylor Branch, the historian, his books and his uh, uh, chronicling of the civil rights, the modern day civil rights movement are really great books to look at. The Civil Rights Movement Veterans page, their website, which was created by a lot of SNCC folk, but it has a whole lot of SCLC history in it. There's so much history there for people who really want to know a, uh, a more all-encompassing truth uh, that, that is there. And I think that in terms of the thing, one thing I really wanted to make sure that, we, that I said was, all of what we have mentioned is uh, uh, talked about is very important. And what is also important is that this piece, The Mountaintop by Katori Hall, as performed by Clinton Lowe and Anissa Hicks for Theater Square, is a piece not to miss for a lot of reasons. It's entertaining, very. It's funny. It's, um, it's uh, uh, enlightening. It's educating. It's empowering. It's, uh, you know, it's great for all of those reasons. And also theatrically, uh, because it is a theater piece, it's kick-ass. Vicki Washington is the director of The Mountaintop by Pulitzer Prize winner Katori Hall. It opens tomorrow night at Theater Squared. We also heard the voices of the actors in the play, Anisha J. Hicks and Clinton Lowe. The excerpts are from a conversation we had Friday morning via Zoom. You can learn more about The Mountaintop at Theater Squared at theater2.org. It's scratching the surface on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Last fall, news from the geosciences world came out that two new species, dating back to the early Cretaceous period, were discovered in Arkansas. Selena Suarez, associate professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas, was the primary author of the findings. She says the first thing you should know, these are not dinosaurs. They're, they're not dinosaurs. It's a fish and a skink. This is a similar genera that we've seen in the region, being in like Oklahoma and Texas in rocks of the same age, um, but it is a brand new species to North America and this area. The other uh, skink-like organism, um, it was a brand new genus and species, so it's it's completely new uh, from the, the genera level 
uh, in North America. Not many early Cretaceous fossils are located in Arkansas, except for this particular part of the state, known as the Holly Creek Formation in southwest Arkansas. Suarez says it all has to do with the paleogeology at the time. During that time period, we were kind of in an intertidal tidal zone in southern Arkansas. Northern Arkansas, for example, probably had dinosaurs and other things running around. But over the years, it's been eroded away. And then also just this region along the coast, like the ancient uh, Gulf Coast, it offers a really nice, what we call a depositional environment or a place where sediment settled and built up and was relatively protected from weathering away. So central to North Arkansas, fossil representation is light. What about East Arkansas? Selena Suarez says that's a problem area, too. The Mississippi River, the modern Mississippi River, has covered over or eroded a lot of the similar aged rock. And so there's not much remnants of these aged rocks in that area anymore um, because we have mostly sediment from the Mississippi River. Selena Suarez is a professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas. Her paper, A New Vertebrate Fauna from Holly Creek Formation, can be found at Pier J., that's P-E-E-R-J dot com. Scratching the Surface is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. You can find past episodes at our website, KUAF.com. Now, from fossils to ratios and proportions, the Scott Family Amazium will celebrate those mathematical elements as part of the new temporary exhibit, Math Moves. Experiencing Ratios and Proportions. Middle, junior, and senior high students are pretty familiar with the concepts, but if it's been a while since you've considered ratios and or proportions, museum staff say don't worry. It's a playful way to reconnect with them. Among the 20 exhibits visitors will use to understand more about ratios or proportions, shadows, sounds, wheels, and knobs will be employed to learn more. The exhibit will open to members of the Scott Family Amazium Saturday, January 29th at 9 a.m., and then to the public the same day at noon. And the first completely solar-powered RV park in Arkansas is now operating. Seal Solar recently announced Wagon Circle RV in North Little Rock will use the sun to produce all the electricity for both business and campers in the park. According to a press release, Seal Solar installed 420 panels at the park that will generate an estimated 242 million megawatts annually. That will result in $25,000 in energy savings annually. That same press release estimates the payback for the infrastructure will take place in five years after a 26% investment tax credit, accelerated depreciation, and a USDA Rural Energy for America program grant. There's only one way to get to the jail at Rikers Island by public transportation, the Q100 bus. My mind thinks about so much when I'm on that bus. I think about the lives who go over the water and never come out. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, a lifeline for inmates' families, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF. You can tune in to KUAF from anywhere by using the free KUAF app. Tomorrow on our show, how Arkansas Children's will use 48 hours in April to help solve challenges in the healthcare industry. We will have these five kind of case studies or problems, and we'll have our, our subject matter experts present those at the, the meet to kick off the meeting. And then these teams of um, you know people that can uh, solve digital health or can have a digital health solution, we'll get together and try to spend 48 hours coming up with a solution for the problem that they pick. A hackathon to help cure healthcare industry ills. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. You can also listen by subscribing to the daily Ozarks at Large podcast wherever you already get your podcasts. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series featuring local artists and restaurants, returns Friday, January 21st with Mia Jeldum and Mockingbird Kitchen. Due to the current COVID-19 surge, January's concert will not have a live audience, but will be live-streamed. Last month's The Lunch Hour podcast featuring Bang and Woodstone Pizza founder Jeremy Gothrop is available on KUAF's YouTube page.
The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. George'sLive.com for more. This is Ozarks at Large. With me is Robert Ginsburg, host of Shades of Jazz every Friday night on KUAF 91.3, Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on KUAF 3. Welcome back, Robert. It's great to be back, Kyle. We're going to talk about one of my favorite artists and I think one of the hardest to define artists uh, on the American landscape right now, Bill Frizzell. Very excited that we're bringing Bill Frizzell back. The Jazz Society presented him as one of the KUAF Summer Jazz mm-hmm. Concerts back in 2018, I think. Um, the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society is teaming up with Roots Festival HQ to co-present Bill Frizzell's trio. And you're right. Frizzell is not an artist that you can pigeonhole. Uh, he's typically thought of as a jazz guitarist, but... One of my favorite quotes is uh, from uh, the BBC, which uh, described Bill Frizzell as at the very epicenter of modern American music. He did the, the CD that was inspired by Dis Farmer, the, the Arkansas-based photographer, and that's very rootsy. And then you can hear, like you said, other things that have been very gospel-influenced or avant-garde. He recorded with Ginger Baker. Yeah. He recorded with... I mean, the drummer it, from Cream. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This is a man whose career has spanned over 40 years. He's recorded over 275 on 275 recordings with probably 50 of his own. He's just incredibly prolific. And um, as we said, just a hard cat to pigeonhole. He's going to be here with his trio. And that kind of uh, helps define what we can expect to hear. And these are master musicians. It's the same trio that was here a few years ago. And it includes Rudy Royston on drums, another very versatile jazz artist, and Thomas Morgan, an amazing bassist. So it'll be a, a classic trio. This is at Roots HQ. Yeah, I know. I, 100 seats max. I, that's really amazing. This is, this is a pretty intimate show for someone of, of this level. Well, I agree. And I'll tell you, Kyle, for me, the sweet spot on experiencing music is that kind of intimacy. Sure. Where you can actually look the artist in the eyes and they can see you as well. And uh, we're going to do two shows to try and offset the expense of bringing these artists in there. There's a 6.30 show and a 9 p.m. show. And uh, that will hopefully allow us to at least have close to 200 people total. But um, tickets are available right now and it's coming up soon. It's January 22nd. This will be at Roots HQ. That's on the southeast corner of the Fayetteville Square. We mentioned all the different sort of uh, places on the musical landscape Bill Frizzell, whether solo or with his trio, can land. But if you listen to any of these recordings, you do hear jazz. improvisatory yeah. nature of the music. Now, that can be said for, you know, jam music. Sure. Or, and bluegrass, people yeah. take. But there is, uh, I, th- I think there's a component there that is what bridges all of these musical forms. When you get into the art of improvisation, that's a, a common thread. But, you know, what's amazing about Bill Frizzell, if you listen to as much of a catalog as you have between now and the 22nd, you'll hear... You'll you'll be reminded of everyone from Pat Metheny to Wes Montgomery to gosh, Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Kyle, I interviewed Bill uh, when he was here back in 2018, and I reviewed that interview before I met with you today. And he's just such a fascinating man. And I was curious about the nature of how he composes, and he had some really interesting things to say. A melody will come into my head and I'll write it down. 
and then I'm thinking, wait a minute, is that, did I, is this something that I remembered, or did I make this up? <laughs> you know, it's like I really don't know anymore where it's coming from. And like a real hardcore example, uh, on my album, it's a solo album, and the, the first song on there is called Pretty Stars. It's a song that I thought I wrote years ago. Frizzell will be here on January 22nd, a 6 o'clock show. 6.30. 6.30 and 9 o'clock. Roots HQ. DigJazz.com for tickets. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. Kyle, thank you. Twenty two will bring a new season of the podcast Undisciplined, which is a collaboration between KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Arkansas. It's hosted by Dr. Karee Batten, produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. Episode one of season two, available tomorrow. You'll be able to hear an excerpt right here on Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7. You can listen to the new episode and all the previous episodes from Season 1 by subscribing to the podcast. It's available wherever you already subscribe to podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Siloam Springs. Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF. Today's show produced inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio by Timothy Dennis. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich, and Mark Chris. Thanks, Robert Ginsburg, for playing along with us today as well. Shades of Jazz with Robert can be heard Friday night at 10 on KUAF, Saturday morning at 11 on KUAF 3. Our conversations between John Brummett from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics, part of our ongoing partnership with Talk Business and Politics. You can learn more at talkbusiness.net. Also today, we had help from the KUAR newsroom. KUAR provides public radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme, titled First Hurrah, written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio inside the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us. We do come back tomorrow. Please take care of yourself.